when the Buddha first started teaching about his realization, he gave the first discourse on the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths is the kind of the bedrock understanding of the way things are that he realized and taught all of the different Buddhist traditions that have uh, taken up the teachings of the Buddha use this understanding as the, the basis of whatever else they, they now teach. And in that discourse, he talks about the first noble truth, which is the truth of dukkha, that there is pain, suffering. The second noble truth is that the cause of this suffering is clinging. The third noble truth is that there is an end to this suffering. And the fourth noble truth is the path to be realized, or the path to be developed by each one of us to realize this end of dukkha. Well, I want to speak a little bit about this fourth noble truth, which is the path. Now, the path, as we know it, is, is called the Noble Eightfold Path. And this path is eight, has eight factors to be developed. And the first of these is, <clears throat> well, this, these eight factors are divided into three, really three practices. The teachings on right actions, right speech, right livelihood, or skillful actions, skillful speech, skillful livelihood, really addresses the, what we would call the transgressive kilesis, the transgressive torments which when present in the heart or in the mind, get acted out and cause harm to others. They transgress against others causing harm. Well, this is the grossest form of unskillful action. And so the Buddha prescribed or taught the practice of sila or the precepts as we're doing here, as a way to exercise some discernment in our intentions in speaking and acting, so that we reflect carefully before speaking and acting to see whether this behavior is going to harm others, and if it does, to exercise restraint, thereby preventing the harm. Well, all you have to do is look at the front page of any newspaper and you'll realize that the world is not practicing sila. There is a catalog of pain and suffering inflicted by other human beings every day. And so we can just reflect in our own life on the topics of killing, stealing, or deception, um, sexual misconduct, speaking untruths or misleading speech, and the use of intoxicants. And you can see that in our own lives, probably all of us have been severely 
impacted by others, maybe ourselves, not keeping the training rules around these topics in our life. It's not, not, this is not rocket science. This is basic human goodness and we all can verify it pretty easily. But it's not easy to keep the precepts in a way that really does not cause any harm to ourselves or others, but that's, that's the practice. Even if we could do that successfully, the mind can still be quite obsessed with unskillful thoughts and feelings and desire to act out, act them out in a way that causes harm. And just that mental obsession can, can really torment us, as we have noticed here. We're not acting out much here, but you can see how painful it is to be aware of the obsessive mind. It just goes on and on and on. And even if you tell the mind to stop, intention is not powerful enough to stop obsessing. You have to train the mind to stop obsessing. And for that, the Buddha taught the development of samadhi, which I spoke about this afternoon, which is really mindfulness. It's just, if you can be mindful of the present moment in Vipassana practice, or if you can be mindful of the chosen object in tranquility practice, and you can do it with enough continuity, you will keep those obsessive thoughts out of the mind. That's not easy, as we have discovered here. It's pretty challenging to do that. But we've all had a taste of, okay, you know, when there's, when there's a good momentum to the mind, we're not so obsessed. Or even if it's erratic, we don't get obsessed so intently or for so long. There's some relief. It's apparent even on a short retreat like this that developing mindful awareness really helps obsessing mind. So that takes care of the, when developed, that would take care of the, what are called the obsessive torments of the mind or the obsessive calasis. But still, conditions change all the time and we are heir to unpredictable circumstances. At any time, anything can happen. And so the, the Buddha realized that there needs to be a more powerful practice to address more subtle suffering. And the subtler suffering is the latent potential in the mind to obsess, which if not caught, will get acted out. So he's addressing the latent potential in the mind rather than a current manifestation of suffering, either obsessively or acting out. And to address this latent potential in the mind, he realized we need to change our understanding of things. We need to change the way we think of things. We need to look at the unexamined assumptions in our life that allow us to fall into obsessing and acting out. And for this he taught the practice of Vipassana. Vipassana is essentially, means essentially, seeing things clearly. 
I might say it's not just seeing, but it's understanding things correctly. And with that, the two factors of the Noble Eightfold Path that fall in the category of Vipassana practice are right view, or correct understanding, and right thought, correct intention. What we're doing here in the development of continuity of awareness is getting a handle on the obsessive torments of the mind. And to the extent that we are opening to the just the proliferation of experiences that we encounter every day, and we're acknowledging them and working with them and paying attention to them as they arise, being with them, noticing them, enduring them, understanding them, this is the practice of Vipassana. It's not by avoiding experience that you develop insight. It's by observing experience with a clear mind to see the inherent characteristics of experience so that we can understand them. And when we do, move our beliefs and our assumptions into alignment with what we've seen. So essentially, Vipassana practice is about working through painful experience to arrive at the view or the understanding of how not to suffer with this kind of experience. It's not about so much changing our experience because we can't, as we know, things happen all the time that we don't choose or make happen or have much control over. And so Vipassana understanding really is the uh, contingency plans, you might say, for the inevitable trouble ahead. We know. I mean, we, we know. Whatever, whatever's going to happen, we, we don't have control over that. But how we understand it will make all the difference in the world as to whether we suffer with it or not. So this Vipassana practice and the development of the right view, the skillful view, the correct view, the non-suffering view of the way things have come to be is really vitally important. Not just for the immediate experience of dealing with this moment, but for whatever might appear at any time in the future. To see the inherent characteristics of all phenomena, we have to pay exceedingly careful attention to every experience. In our ordinary life, in our everyday give-and-take world of domestic, civic, social, professional relationships, responsibilities, obligations, commitments, 
we live at and work at and relate to each other through consensual reality. We all kind of agree this is how it is in the world of human relationship. And even with that, there's quite a lot of dissonance and struggle and suffering and pain. But that level of understanding is not sufficient for uprooting wrong assumptions about experience. And so when we practice mindfulness to develop insight, we have to look much more carefully beneath the surface of conventional reality. We need to look at the moment-to-moment, what I call the pixelated view of reality. You know, have you ever seen a Jackson Pollock painting? (laughs) Even a picture of a Jackson Pollock painting? (laughs) You know, there's a painting on the wall, you know, a little bit bigger than that wall there, you know. It's huge. And... When you first see it, it just looks like, well, excuse the expression, but a mess. With some expletives before it. It just looks like, what the, what is that all about? You know, it's just paint, drips, drops, slabs, slosh, splash. It's, you know, colors. It's, 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 it's a, just a riot, a chaotic riot of colors and shapes. And you look at that and you think, But that's looking at it as a whole. You look at it as a whole painting and you think, okay, that's it. But when you start looking at it as if you were pixelating it and you're isolating, these are all the yellows, these are all the reds, these are all the things. These are all the dots, these are all the splashes, these are all the drips, these are all the lines. These are all, you know, and that's kind of my analytical mind. That's what my analytical mind does. Other people look at it other ways and they see other things. But nevertheless, once you start kind of putting some careful attention to the actual phenomena on the wall, on the painting, something falls into place. Some understanding, some appreciation, some something more than you first saw with this whole picture. Well, it's that pixelated view of things that gets underneath the surface appearance of things to see the underlying nature of it. It doesn't, it doesn't obliterate or obscure the ordinary reality view of it. It just gives you more information about it. So the same thing happens when we practice Vipassana with our moment-to-moment experience here. We start to disassemble or disaggregate this whole package called me into all of its pixels of phenomena. Sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, thinking, different kinds of thinking, different kinds of sensations in the body. And we, we pixelate everything to really get into the essence of the stuff of my life. Tonight, I want to talk about those pixels, and the understanding that liberates the mind from wrong view. Vipassana, as I said, essentially means seeing things clearly. 
And what we see through, let's say, the Vipassana lens or through Vipassana practice is we see the universal characteristics of all phenomena. And there are three. And the characteristics are what are called anicca, dukkha, and anatta. We see that everything is impermanent. We see that everything is dukkha, which means unsatisfactory. And we see that everything has the characteristic of anatta, meaning it is conditioned and inherently empty of an eternal substance. Those are all pretty... They need some explaining. But let me just say, is there anybody in the room that doesn't know that things are impermanent? We, we know that things are impermanent. We know that seasons change, governments change, you know, our health changes, you know, day turns to night and so on, the moon phases change. We know that everything changes. The body changes and in the course of a lifetime it grows from infant to whatever age it is when it passes away. This is no secret. We know that. But even with that level of knowledge and commitment, we still construct our life as if things were permanent. We try to establish as much solidity, security, permanency in our life, in our relationships, in our institutions, in our social agreements, in our political agreements, to try to make things not change so that they're predictable uh, and reliable and they provide a continuity of security and safety as best we can construct it. And even with all that, we're pretty bad at it. <laughs> you know, we're still, we still live with this immense insecurity. So I want to talk about these insights or these understandings because they're not conventional. We use the word impermanence, but the experience of impermanence is very different than our understanding of impermanence. And it is the experience of impermanence that we come to through insight practice. So, the first of these insights, and I call them unexamined assumptions, because we live our life as if, and we assume that things are going to stay pretty, pretty predictable, pretty reliable, pretty same-same, and we don't look very carefully at that. So, anicca means that, of course, things arise, they're subject to change, and eventually they disappear. They're not permanent. And initially, in practice, in conventional reality, we understand that. We understand things change, but it's difficult to see. When we hear the teachings of the Buddha, we can understand that he's pointing to something pretty profound because he asks us to consider daily, to reflect daily on the fact that we're going to pass away. That death is an ever-present reality for us. And none of us knows when it's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. We know it's going to happen to us. And none of us knows when. Well, when we reflect on that daily, it's not just to get morbid and frightened and you know, upset and anxious, it's to bring home the truth of impermanence 
so that we live more carefully. We live life with a greater sense of urgency and really resolve as to what, what really is important to be doing in case I don't make it till tomorrow. When we th- hear the teachings of impermanence, we often, in practice, in the initial days or phases of practice, we reflectively apply the understanding of impermanence to our life. And we think of things in the past and how they've gone by, things in the present, how they are happening and not very reliable and stable. And we think that in the future we also don't know. And we can think about impermanence and we can, we can build in some consideration of impermanence into how we make decisions, how we plan, how we make uh, agreements. Because we know it's, it's true, things are impermanent. But on a moment-to-moment level with our mind and body, we miss it. It's said that impermanence, the truth of impermanence, is hidden by the massive continuity of phenomena. Things are so continuous and so quickly continuous that we that they create the appearance, the illusion of solidity. In Hawaii, when you go to a luau, they always have luau's right at dusk. You start during the sunset time where you can see the food and then by the time you finish your food it's dark and the show is on and they always have these torch twirlers you know the guys the the hula dancers or the the guys and mostly guys are doing it they have these torches they're lit on both ends and they're flipping them around tossing around tossing them in the air and whipping around and they create the illusion that there is a circle of fire which they do things with, you know, above them and below them, around them, and, you know, they're in the middle of it. And, and there's, no, there's no circle of fire. You see them light each end of the torch, but then they're spinning it so fast that it creates this illusion in the dark that there's a circle. That's how the illusion of solidity is created by this massive continuity of phenomena. But there really is none. We do the same thing with our body. We do the same thing with our mind. We do the same thing with our relationships. We We don't look close enough to see the moments of experience which are all glued together into a massive continuity of phenomena creating the illusion of permanence. So, the way it manifests in our experience, we notice it in, in meditating like this. We're sitting, and let's say, let's say, for some reason, we have a good sitting. You know, whatever that, whatever that is for you. You know, calm, quiet, clear, no pain, you know, some, some, something. And even though we know we've been struggling for days, and it has arrived, when it arrives and we're kind of there with it, there's this 
little voice in the mind that says, ah, this is the way it's going to be forever. And we know it. We, We even know it's not true. But the feeling is, it's going to. Or, more likely, you're sitting and you have a knee pain or a back pain, shoulder pain, something, and while you're work, you're working with it, you know, in creeps this little voice that says, you know, I had this last time, I had this last sitting, I'm having it this time, it's probably going to come every time. It's like, this is forever. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, we can't, we can't see impermanence on a, on a long basis. We just, we just see it's going to be continuing and enduring. We have this habit of eternalizing momentary perceptions. It's an assumption. It's what the mind does automatically. It's not through any fault of our own. We just don't see it. And so we take a momentary perception of, well, impermanence or pain or joy or anything else, and we just assume it's going to be eternal. Even though we know as a belief that's stupid. It's not going to happen. When we observe our mental and physical experience, the phenomena of our mind and bodies on a moment-to-moment basis, we see their, well, we say, we see their nature. First we see, well, this is the nature of the body. It feels like this. And this is the nature of this mental state of fear, or this is the nature of this mental state of joy, or this is mental state of excitement. And we can see the individual qualities. But underneath the individual qualities, the unique qualities of each of these physical and mental phenomena, is this universal quality that they're all impermanent. They don't last very long. And we begin to see this when we pay close enough attention to see, when the mind is steady enough to see something arise, endure for a split second, and pass away. It's not because we say, oh yeah, I was thinking of that earlier this morning, and it's gone now, therefore it's impermanent. It's like we see it with the mind in a very quick succession, how quickly things are arising and passing away. Is there anything that you experienced earlier today that is still persisting? No. Everything has come and gone. Everything has come and gone. Everything in your life has come and gone. That's hard enough to handle. Just the fact that things are incessantly changing and we can't stop them. There's a further insight into anicca or impermanence that is more shattering of the illusion of permanence and continuity. And that is when we see that the observing... I don't want to say observer because, well, we've seen that everything about this observer is rising and passing away. So let's say the observing. We think the observing is this steady continuity of just knowing every moment as it arises and passes away. At some point, we begin to see that this observing is also impermanent. It, too, is arising and passing away. Well, let me just say, what does it mean when everything you experience is arising and passing away 
and everything that you think is you is arising and passing away. And even the observing of you and it is also arising and passing away. What's left? (laughs) Wow. It's like there really isn't anything here that endures for more than a split second. Except the belief that it does. And that belief we hang on to with tenaciously. Because we don't know how to handle the fact and we can't handle the, the, the radical notion that there's nobody here. That it is all just fluxing phenomena, nothing any more enduring than that. Well, it is said by some that Vipassana practice is really about learning how to grieve effectively. Because as we see the arising and passing away of phenomena, there is a sense of loss of that phenomena. And not only is there a sense of loss, there's a sense of loss of... There is a loss of the sense of self, moment to moment. And we see that whoever we think we are, however we think we are, is just an idea that we've had for some reason, some experience. And in fact, that sense of self is also lost every moment. This is hard to see, hard to grieve. How do we grieve the loss of our sense of self? It's really challenging. It's very, at times, frightening, uh, destabilizing. And at times when, when the insight into impermanence is so clear, it's really, really upsetting. It really is emotionally very upsetting and challenging to uh, learn how to accept and grieve the loss of everything that we have relied on in our life. The Buddha said of this insight into impermanence. Though with a faithful heart one takes refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, or with a faithful heart one observes the rules of morality, the precepts, or develops a mind full of loving-kindness, by far more meritorious it is if one cultivates the perception of impermanence, even if only for a single moment. A single moment of the clear perception of how impermanent everything is. More valuable, more significant, more powerful than a heart full of faith in the Buddha Dharma Sangha or loving kindness or the rule, keeping the rules of moral conduct. What does that mean? How powerful is this insight into impermanence? The only way we can accommodate it, eventually, ultimately, is to learn to let go. There's just really, you cannot hold on to what does not exist. And yet, we do. We hold on to it conceptually, even if we can't experientially. And so it's learning how to grieve the loss and the letting go of everything that we've known. 
let me just say, the insight into impermanence is the easy one. And that's not easy. The second insight is into the insight into dukkha. Now, the word dukkha means unsatisfactoriness. And it has a few experiences that need to be enumerated. The first meaning of the word dukkha is pain. Physical pain, mental pain, the pain of toothache, the pain of growing old, the pain of hitting your finger with a hammer, slamming it in the door, the pain of disease, the mental pain of sadness, loss, frustration, disappointment, despair, depression. It's the, the list is endless, and we've all experienced a lot of it. It's not hard to understand, is it? That life involves a lot of unsatisfactory, painful, physical, mental, emotional experiences. Okay. There's a second meaning of the word, or a second experience of the word dukkha, and it refers to the fact that everything changes. So even though we have stable, pleasant conditions in our life right now, relatively healthy, some discretionary time to come on a retreat, enough income to get here, uh, mental capacity to understand what you're hearing and to practice somewhat effectively, and when we leave here, we go back to a relative, the relative security and safety of our home, our cars, our finances, our credit cards, social relationships, and a politi- stable political system. Kind of. <laughs> and we rely on that for a sense of security and safety and ease in the world. And it kind of reflects who we are. And yet, a couple of years ago, everyone living in northern Japan, where the tsunami, where the earthquake and the tsunami struck, had the same belief as we do. Their lives were going along with all that same security. And in the snap of a finger, gone. Gone. All that they put all that they had acquired and constructed and agreed upon among themselves for security and safety and reliability and seeing them through pleasantly in life. And there wasn't anything any of them could do to stop it. That can happen to us at any time. Something just like that. Something as uncontrollable, overwhelming, and totally annihilating of our sense of security, safety, protection. And we live with this understanding all the time. We don't bring it into view because we don't know how to handle it. And so it hovers just on the periphery of our awareness. And yet when we start practicing Vipassana, we get glimpses. We get glimpses of just how unstable life really is. Our health, 
our finances, our social and political institutions relationship. It's all pretty fragile, actually. We can't make it any more solid. When we see this, when we begin to see this, it, well, it really shakes up our life. I mean, it's like, what can you do about it? You can't, you can't fix it. That's the way things are. They are unstable. So even though conditions are good now, we could say that dukkha, or the unsatisfactoriness of these conditions, is hidden behind the pleasantness. But just behind that pleasantness is this truth, this unexamined assumption that if I can just construct enough pleasurable experiences in my life, I'm going to be secure and happy. And we do. We pursue pleasure endlessly. Physical pleasure, mental pleasure, economic pleasure, social pleasure, political pleasure. We just, that's our goal in life, really, is to have as much pleasure and safety and security that we can get in all these realms. Assuming that it's going to make us happy. And as soon as you start looking a little bit closer at the way things are in life, you see that it's not possible. These things change all the time. This kind of insecurity and instability is just well, it's very hard to accommodate. What is it, what understanding do we have to come to to not suffer with this reality? How can we learn to let go of the idea that pleasure brings happiness? It doesn't, it doesn't mean you have to be, seek unpleasure. You don't have to seek unpleasant things. You just have to see that the false security of pleasure is in the fact that it changes and we live with insecurity. Can we learn to live with insecurity? Can we learn to live so in the moment of experience that whatever happens, we, the mind, can accommodate and make, uh, just kind of accept this is the way it is. Even in Dhamma practice, you know, we think, okay, this is the way to get a handle on changing things. We come to the Dharma, we practice, we learn about dukkha, and we're going to learn how to handle this unsatisfactoriness. So we come, and somewhere in the sitting, you have a good, somewhere in the retreat, you have a good sitting. There's nothing worse than a good sitting. <laughs> we say there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing like a good sitting to ruin the rest of your day. <laughs> and why is that? Because as soon as you have a good sitting, you expect it the next time. And it's never that good the next time. We can't... It's very difficult to get away from the tendency to seek pleasure as security. The third meaning, experience, of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, has two flavors, a macro view and a micro view. And the macro view is we're born, and our parents, doing the best they can, for a few years, take care of us. 
They feed us, they bathe us, they clothe us, they love us, they coo us, they poop us, they clean us, they educate us, they do everything they can to keep us happy, because if we're not happy, they're not going to be happy. (laughs) And as soon as they can, they entrain all sorts of relatives and friends and peers and neighbors and babysitters and whatever to help carry the load, to kind of keep you happy, keep me happy, each of us happy. And slowly in the process, we get educated. And then we go off to school, and ah, now we've got teachers to kind of keep us educated. And the government gets involved and tells us how we got to do it. Well, at some point, you know, somewhere in our teenage years, we get it. We get the point. We've done all we can for you, kids. You're on your own. Now, we have the responsibility. Now, each one of us has fully accepted the responsibility, i got to take care of myself. And to take care of myself, i got to eat. And to eat, i got to buy food. And to buy food, i got to have money. And to get the money, i got to have a job. And to get a job, i better get an education. And the better the education, the better the job, the more money, the better food, the better the life. So, 16 years of schooling, now there's some dukkha. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just the beginning. you got to go shopping. And you've got to take it home, and you've got to put it in all the cupboards. <laughs> you've got to watch your checkbook. And in every meal, you've got to take it out, open it up, heat it up, <laughs> wash it up, recycle everything you get, you know, including what goes through you, recycle that out that way, and you've know, you got to do this every day. And not only that, you've got you to take care of yourself, you've got to groom yourself, you've got you to bathe, and you've got to clean, comb your hair, and you've got to brush your teeth, and you've got to pick your nose and you got to watch your put on your makeup and you know all that stuff and you got to do it every day and you got to go to the toilet and you got to shower and you got to clothes just take a look at your closets you know what that involves that's a lot of shopping that's a lot of picking and choosing and liking and disliking and things fit and don't fit and and how many how many, how many bad hair days have you had this, life, this lifetime you haven't had many <laughs> i know you, you've solved the problem. Okay, so uh, <laughs> nevertheless, we got to do this, and we got to take care of ourselves physically. We have to take care of ourselves emotionally, because if we don't keep ourselves entertained, distracted, socially engaged, and busy, we're going to be lonely, frustrated, disappointed, isolated, alienated, and that's suffering. So we got we we got a pretty busy social life just to kind of not be up, not be emotionally upset, and you got to do this every day for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, maybe eight decades every day. Nobody's going to do it. You can't you can't entice anybody else to do it for you. You got you know you, you you can try and you get some help you know along the way, but. You've got to do it. You've got to take care of this body and mind. And then what happens? On some day, that least expecting it, well, you know what? Somebody else is going to handle this body, wash it up, put the best clothes you had in the closet on it, put it in a box, say a few mumble-jumble words over you, put you in the ground, and it's over. Some people would say, that was a bad investment. <laughs> 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 if 
it's a good thing we can laugh because the only other option is to go, oh my God, how do I get out of this threat? How do I get out of this mess? You can't. You cannot. If all we're doing with this life is keeping it beautiful and entertained until we go in the box and get in the ground, let me be frank with you. You're wasting your time. Absolutely wasting the value of a human life. Because with this human life, as we have all done, we've sought out something more important, more valuable, more meaningful. And we've heard the Dharma, we're practicing the Dharma, and we're using our life to develop understanding, to act compassionately, to be generous, to be loving, to be... And of course, there's a tremendous need for all of those qualities in all of us and around the world. So we can make our human life really valuable in serving others. Serving ourselves, serving others, coming to whatever understanding we can. Nevertheless, the end is in sight. That whole experience is pretty unsatisfactory. There's a lot of pleasure. There are moments of satisfaction. But where's it all going? The micro view of this kind of dukkha is we're born and we have six sense doors. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, mouth, body, mind. And they are constantly and incessantly stimulated. You can't turn them off. You can plug your ears, you're still here. Close your eyes, you'll still see. You can't shut sensations out of the body no matter how much drugs you do. And your mind, has anybody learned yet how to turn it off? We are bombarded with sense impressions forever. And we know how, how painful, how burdensome, how oppressive it is at times. You just can't shut it off. And it's just, it's just oppressive. That oppressive feeling is really unsatisfying. That's dukkha. Pain is dukkha, insecurity is dukkha, vulnerability is dukkha, oppression is dukkha, meaninglessness is dukkha. And this is, this is the essential, inherent nature of this human life. Well, this is what we're going to see. Now, let me tell you, in the practice of Vipassana, you have to see, you have to come to this understanding. You have to realize that things are unsatisfactory. No matter what we experience, it is either painful, or it's changeable and therefore insecure, or it's oppressive. When we come to see this in all of our experience, there's one good thing that happens we now understand the truth of dukkha. And that understanding, not the experience of dukkha, but the understanding of dukkha, frees us from any other expectation. We know this is the way it is. And so we're not holding out for anything better. We're not, we're not expecting it to be different. We can learn to live with this truth quite happily, actually. When we understand and accept this is the way it is, we can live in alignment with that truth. 
And that's a powerful shift in our understanding of the way things are and how to live and what kind of decisions we make in our life. It's not that you have to be uh, pessimistic or just kind of like a, a kind of a, a naysayer about everything. You make the best of everything, of course. But you don't have false expectations that somehow it's going to be so pleasant and so secure and so la-di-da. That knowledge, the knowledge of the truth of dukkha is invaluable. You can hear it from me, you can read it in a book, but that's not sufficient. You actually have to experience it. You have to see for yourself, this is the way it is. There's no escape. And when the mind finally understands, finally tries, the mind will try everything to avoid this truth, to avoid seeing this is the way it is. And once you've exhausted every other possibility, the mind will eventually accept this is the way it is. And in that acceptance, there is an ease in living life. And this is the part of the freedom. This is part of the changing of views, working things through to come to an understanding that frees us from suffering. The third characteristic is what's called the anatta characteristic. Often translated or talked about as not self or no self. That is unfortunate. Because no self, not self, what the hell does that mean? You know, really. I mean, it's scary. No self. What do you mean no self? We can't even imagine. We don't, don't. It's impossible to think about. But what it really means is, experientially, things are insubstantial. Things are conditioned. Things are ephemeral, evanescent. And when we look beneath the surface of our experience, at the experience of the body, the experience of the mind, we see how fleeting, evanescent, insubstantial, put-together, constructed everything is. And when you try to really get to the bottom of something and taste its, it taste its real flavor, there's nothing there. It's just a set of conditions. Even Western science has come to realize that this body is not really made up of anything except massive amounts of energy. Just moving around in such a pattern, in such a pace, to create the illusion, the illusion that there's something of substance here. But really, it's just a massive dance of energy, which has no, nothing to it. It's just energy creating this illusion. It's like, you know, it's like a rainbow in the sky. You look at a rainbow in the sky and you think, wow, that's really something. But that rainbow is created by a certain set of conditions. There's moisture in the air, the sun is shining, you're viewing it at a certain angle, and there is this appearance, this very colorful appearance. But there isn't anybody in the world that can catch that rainbow, put it in a jar, and send it to somebody else. Because there really is no such thing. 
right? There's nothing of substance in a rainbow. There is just the creation of an illusion or an appearance due to conditions. This body and this mind is the same thing. It's an appearance created out of conditions, but there is inherent in it no substantial thing. And we can see that. We will see this as we look closely at our mental and physical experiences over and over again. We'll see that you can't find it. You can't find the substance of this body. You can't find the substance of the mind. There's no, there's no substance. There's no enduring entity in here to whom all of this is happening. That's hard to see. It's hard to understand. It's very difficult to confirm experientially in practice. But with continuity of mindful awareness and working through painful experiences, we will come to it. We'll see. We will see how inherently essenceless this all is. At the appearance level, we've got to take care of it. It's good to be compassionate, it's good to be kind, it's good to be careful. But at the essential pixelated level, there's nothing there to take care of. There's no substantial thing. That's hard to deal with. It really is hard emotionally to accept the truth of the inherent emptiness of this thing called me, mind and body. It's very disturbing. It can be very upsetting. We can, we can have a lot of emotional reaction to it. And so some people you know, point to the, the challenges of just practicing mindfulness. You know, go to mindfulness course for stress reduction and everything's going to be wonderful. You know? And yet some people open up to these insights and they have terrifying experiences. So, forewarned is forearmed. Just know that, you know, the path ahead has got some challenging terrain. But it can be navigated. It can be negotiated. You can pass through it. You can learn to see or you can get glimpses into these insights. And they're very liberating. They're very, very freeing. And when they mature... And we see, oh, this is the way it is. They're impermanent, they're unsatisfactory, they're insubstantial, or they're essenceless, they're conditioned. What is there to hold on to? Remember, clinging is the cause of suffering. And when you see this characteristic of all phenomena, how can you hold on to that which is impermanent? How can you hold on to that, or why would you hold on to that which is unsatisfactory or painful? And how can you hold on to anything that has no essence? It's not like we rationally think that and say, okay, I'll let go. The mind will have been trained at this point to not reach for, not hold on to, allow the appearances to be there, know that this is our life, but not hold on with any sense that this is permanent, this is satisfying, this is really who I am. And it's the knowledge, it's the insight knowledge, it's the wisdom of these three characteristics which frees us from clinging. And when we don't cling, 
we don't suffer. The Buddha said of the anatta characteristic, he said, the wrong view of personality view, I, me, mine, the wrong view of personality belief has everywhere and at all times most misled and deluded humankind. It is this wrong view that has most confused us, most deluded us, most misled us. This vipassana knowledge is gained from developing mindful awareness that we're doing here. When everything comes into view and everything is seen into and we see its inherent characteristics, we come to these understandings. We uproot the unexamined assumptions that things are permanent, things are reliable, things are pleasant, this is the way to happiness and it's all about me. And we uproot those assumptions. And while there's a lot of resistance and a lot of sense of loss and it's scary at times and very upsetting, the possibilities on the other end of this knowledge, this stream of emerging knowledge, is peace. Not just calmness, not just bliss, not just ecstasy, not even just happiness. It's peace. The mind at peace not struggling with anything, but accepting this is the way it is. This is the way things have come to be for now, and this is the way it'll be. More than contentment, peace is, as the Buddha said, there is no higher happiness than peace. So let's just sit for a moment and let these words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.